Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We love reading poetry and talking about it. If you're in Hartford, you may get a chance to read poetry written by young people and displayed in a unique way. Coming up, we talk to the Charter Oak Cultural Center about its poetry bus project. That's later. First, you remember presidential candidate Andrew Yang, who's now running for New York City mayor. One of his campaign ideas was universal basic income, or UBI, where everyone gets a regular check from the government. Now, different variations have been tried in places like California and in Finland. Now, lawmakers in Hartford are exploring whether to offer a regular stipend to some city residents. The Hartford City Council formed a task force to study the idea, and two members of the task force join us now on Zoom. First, Dr. Gina Rosich is here, assistant professor at the University of St. Joseph's Department of Social Work and Equitable Community Practice. Gina, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Also with us, another task force member, Steve Ross, professor of economics at University of Connecticut. Hi, Steve. Hi. Nice to meet you, Lucy. So I'll start with you, Steve. When I mention universal basic income, describe the general idea and really what has made this uh, more popular in the last uh, several years. I, I think the key thing about universal basic income, unlike, for example, the earned income tax credit mm-hmm. or food stamps, is that there's not an application process, there's not qualifying conditions, concerns that it might be taken away. It's something that's guaranteed. And that guaranteed stream of income really can relieve stress off households and allow perhaps households to better function and possibly be more successful because of that reduction in stress. Uh, Coming up, we're going to learn more about the Stockton, California pilot. But I understand Alaska has had a UBI for some time, Steve. Yes, it's an interesting thing. We think about Alaska um, as as this um, very um, conservative state. And I, I imagine if you affiliated sort of Andrew Yang's positions with Alaskan voters, they'd be rather <laughs> upset about it. But the truth is that when um, when oil was discovered in the North Shore of Alaska, a corporation was set up and a conservative movement within Alaska pushed to have um, that money set aside so that it couldn't be necessarily used for broader purposes, but rather as a payment to every citizen. Um, and the people I know in Alaska really view that as an entitlement. It's a very important thing that they count on. Um, And I have to imagine having that payment there makes a big difference in the lives of Alaskans. Mm. That's interesting. When we talk about the the dynamics in Alaska, Steve, when we think of other uh, safety net programs that the government provides, uh, like SNAP, uh, like the Earned Income Tax Credit, not um, when we think about political affiliations, not everyone's on board. So why why does the UBI have support from from uh, either side in certain certain cases? 
Well, I think to some extent, um, part of the um, the issue with 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 Alaska and and their basic income is is the history, right? It's viewed as an entitlement. It's something that's they view as part of being an Alaskan, and and at the same, so it doesn't get tied up with this idea of public assistance or or a poverty program, um, the way food stamps might be in terms of what it, what exists in Alaska. Um, and I think part of it was, you know, it came from a more conservative movement. They were not happy with what politicians were doing with the money. They wanted to remove the money from, from, from the state government and put it back in the people, in the individual's hands. But it, but it is, an inter- it just is an interesting um, contradiction, right? Because it is a, a, a substantial amount of money that is being sort of distributed universally to everyone and and it, it probably has very similar effects to a universal basic income program although it's perceived very differently uh, Gina, now that you're on this task force with Steve um, to look at a potential pilot in the city of Hartford, talk us through what you're examining and, and how a pilot program could work in Hartford. Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, so we are still working out the details of what this kind of program uh, would look like, but uh, at minimum, we want to target single parents in the city of Hartford who, um, you know, 66% of single parents in Hartford are living near or below the poverty line. And so we want to have a program that will look at seeing in what ways this can assist that particular group. So that's interesting. So the idea of universal basic income, it wouldn't necessarily be universal, but you're looking at people who may, who stand to benefit the, benefit the most, Gina. I think that's fair to say. Uh, I mean, that was certainly part of the mandate uh, when, uh, when the original idea was uh, brought to us. So in your uh, beginning research on this and uh, with your task force, obviously you've been studying uh, this kind of, of uh, assistance when you think about equitable community practice. So, so what are some of the benefits to having UBI for some of the families in Hartford? So there are so many benefits that a family can have from a UBI. Um, for one thing, income insecurity is a a tenuous place to live. It's extremely stressful when you're worried about whether you can pay for food or childcare or transportation costs, uh, you know, healthcare, any slight uh, blip in your normal schedule can throw something off. So that could mean something like fewer work hours or a major illness or some other emergency situation that happens can completely uh, throw off a family. And so by having a universal basic income, families can engage in self-determination and prioritizing where these funds can go when they are needed without having the kinds of restrictions that mandate this can only go for food or this can only go to housing. For example, people, uh, you know, people who live on this sort of threshold where they're working poor can, you know, like I said, any slight thing can throw someone off. 
and that can have a cumulative effect. So if you don't pay your utilities on time, you can that can lead to a shutoff of your electricity, for example. Uh, you wind up having to pay fees and penalties, which lower your credit score, which uh, you know further impacts the wealth gap and can also lead to things like eviction if you're behind on your rent. This is an issue we're concerned about in the state and across the country right now. We have an eviction moratorium, but we don't know what's going to happen when that moratorium is lifted. And so having funds when you need them to have a, like a reserve or to catch up will just have an exponential effect. You know, in addition, you have situations where people may have healthcare costs or will put off basic health care because they cannot afford uh, to pay a copay, for example, uh, to go see a doctor or for medications. And that has a cumulative effect on the body, right? So you become sicker over time. You can have additional health problems when certain health problems are not uh, dealt with, right? Like, so high blood pressure can lead to stroke. Type 2 diabetes can lead to peripheral neuropathy, and uh, circulation problems, kidney problems, and so on. And down the line, that leads to less productivity. You may lose time at work and then, you know, lose your ability to function altogether. So having this income and the flexibility around it really supports the self-determination to, for families to prioritize what's happening in their households. You're hearing Dr. Gina Rossich, Assistant Professor at the University of St. Joseph's Department of Social Work and Equitable Community Practice. She's part of a task force with our other guest, Steve Ross, Professor of Economics at University of Connecticut. They're studying this idea of universal basic income and the potential for a pilot program in the city of Hartford to help some city residents. You can join our conversation if you have a question, 888-888. Now I'm forgetting the phone number on this Monday morning, Uh, 888. 8-7-2-0-9-6-7-7. That's eight 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 seven two zero WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Steve, I want to go back to you because you're an economist. When we talk uh, about um, how this kind of program could help people in the poverty level, I wonder if you could add a little more to what Gina has mentioned. So um, I think one of the big things that's pushed forward this idea of a universal basic income has been a recent work in behavioral economics, where we've shown that a lot of the sort of traditional theories of economics really don't hold, right? Economics predicts if you give someone income, they'll likely work less, substitute from consumption to consuming their own time. But in reality, work takes a lot of focus, takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy. Poverty, being poor, having a scarcity of things, as Gina described, is a continual tax on your ability to function. Um, 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 Eldar Shafir at Princeton had a wonderful experiment where he put Princeton undergrads, the very elite in our society, in a game that sort of mimicked payday lending, but with time. And, and they behaved exactly as we see poor individuals behave with payday lenders, taking these very expensive loans, falling behind, having to take more expensive loans, performing terribly in the game because they were just a little bit scarce in time and they had this expensive opportunity to borrow. Right. And so when you face scarcity, it's very hard to sort of manage and make good decisions. And there increasingly there's a lot of evidence that um, that, that's that's a big part 
of what the problem of poverty is. It's not that the poor are different. They're not poor because they're different. They're behaving differently because they are poor. And and I think, um, sorry, the Stockton example is a great place where, you know, they, the Stockton UBI led to more success in the labor market, right? So we gave people more income. They didn't work less. They were able to manage their lives better. And then because of that, they were able to be more successful in the labor market just because they were less likely to have some hiccup that might prevent them from getting to work. They were able to sort of, you know, manage problems so that they could then perform well at work and not uh, make mistakes at work or get angry at work. That's an interesting point that Steve raises, uh, Gina. Uh, oftentimes when we talk about assistance programs in this country, uh, safety net programs to help people, there's a judgment that people have out there or they might be uh, critical of how the money will be spent. Can you talk about that? Yeah, actually, um, I first want to kind of build on what Steve was saying in in terms of looking at time scarcity. When people have time scarcity, they compromise other areas of their lives. And when you live in poverty, poverty can actually increase the likelihood of depression and anxiety. And when you don't have uh, savings, you may feel... Uh, so, for example, people will stay in domestic violence situations that are unsafe because they don't have the funds to leave. And that obviously is, is not a good thing. Um, but poverty can also lead to increases in drug and alcohol abuse because of the stressors. And in terms of time scarcity, also it affects child functioning because people who are poor are not working less. They're often working more. You have people who are working two or three jobs in order to try to make ends meet. And as a result, um, have less time to spend with their children, right? So that can have a cumulative effect as well on the well-being of children as a result. And so as Steve was saying, you know, folks are not necessarily different because they're poor. They are managing different stressors because they're poor. And in this country, and getting back to your question, we tend to demonize people who live in poverty or people who are working poor, uh, trying to get by. Uh, I think it goes back to the notion of a Protestant work ethic and this idea that if you work enough that you will be a good person. But the fact of the matter is, is that we don't have a living wage. And without a living wage, people are working uh, way more than 40 hours a week, you know, regular nine to five jobs and then gig economy jobs in order to try to make ends meet. That leads to the time scarcity and increases your stress level, which again loops back to increases in depression and anxiety um, and all the ways that people try to cope when they are under incredible amounts of stress. Mm. Uh, Steve and Gina, you're both explaining UBI very well and the, the positive benefits uh, to a program like this. But Steve, again, in your work with this task force, I know you're in the early stages. You know, How would this be paid for in the city of Hartford if they move forward? Well, I, I agree. That's a very difficult problem, right? Redistribution at the local level is much harder than redistribution at the um, state or even the, or more importantly, at the federal level. Um, 
it, it will certainly be a challenge, would be a challenge for the city to implement a broad UBI. There, there would be payoffs, right? It, would, it could affect where people live. It could help reverse loss of population, but only be, but at the same time, it could also hurt as they have to raise taxes to pay for it. Um, so, so redistribution at the local level is always a challenge. And, and I and I I don't know what the eventual trade-off is. I will salute the the city of Hartford for making the right decision in terms of saying we're not just going to dive in. We don't know a lot about a UBI, and it will be costly. So they want to try to do a pilot. They want to see what the effects are, how large are the positive effects, and that will allow them to make intelligent trade-offs against some of the costs that they will have to face if they want to implement such a program in a broad-based way. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live as we talk about universal basic income. I know that um, there has been some reporting that uh, Hartford city lawmakers, some have raised the possibility of using cannabis tax revenue if Connecticut, of course, legalizes recreational marijuana. Uh, Matt's calling in from Ledger. Matt, go ahead. Um, I just had a question kind of to the earlier point about um, the cost of the program. Uh, to what extent uh, do you guys foresee this UBI, um, you know, replacing certain other social safety net programs? Do you think it'll reduce um, the use of, of WIC or SNAP, for example, um, for the folks who receive it? Gina, do you want to take that one? So... That's a complicated question <laughs> to which there is no one single answer. Uh, I, I don't know that uh, the UBI program, what we want to do, let me back up, what we want to do is ensure that people don't lose their benefits while they're part of the UBI program. So it's not designed to replace it, but to enhance it because people are already struggling even with those kinds of benefits. But we do know that when people have sufficient income that there are certain um, costs that naturally go down because utilization goes down in general. So for example, the cost of uh, homeless shelter uh, payments, right? Uh, people will use emergency rooms less for um, healthcare or for regular healthcare, which will lower costs in the state. And so there's that kind of examination that can take place in terms of whether people are uh, utilizing or not the prevention of emergency services, if you will, um, as a result. But I don't anticipate that a small UBI pilot pro project like this will result in everybody who's on it no longer utilizing food stamps in the short run, because that's not really what we're looking at. But a broader concern for the program, right, that, that the city of Hartford does need to think about is that Unless federal food stamp rule, rules were changed, um, federal housing voucher rules were changed, an extra dollar of income does lead to reduction in those benefits. So you might only keep, if you had a broad-based UBI at Hartford, something that might happen is, you know, that Hartford might be giving these individuals a dollar and then 40 cents of it could be going back to the federal government. Right. And so there is a, a complicated um, process that needs to be negotiated. Sometimes there can be waivers 
um, to some of the rules of these programs so that the individuals don't lose the UBI. But without federal cooperation, actually, you know, every dollar the city does spend does sort of co- can cost them 30 or 40 cents of federal dollars in terms of the income it, people in the city have. And, and that's one of the reasons that, um, that redistribution at the local level is difficult because of the structure of these federal programs. And I, I actually want to add to that, thank you, Steve, that uh, people live in what's called a benefits cliff, where if you earn $1 more than whatever the threshold is for the means testing of a program, you can lose that benefit altogether. And so people wind up making trade-offs to stay within a predictable safety zone. And so we need to be very, very careful about ensuring that people don't lose those benefits because if you have one and not the other, then they are over the threshold, but still not making enough for meeting basic needs. Steve Ross, a professor of economics at the University of Connecticut. So again, you are a member of, I think, a three-person task force with, along with Gina and another a professor, I believe. So tell me, what are the next steps? Um, so we are basically scheduled for sort of bi-weekly meetings where we We'll be discussing a plan for how the pilot would be set up. Um, there'll need to be decisions about the size of the pilot. Of course, that's limited by the funds that are available. There'll need to be decisions about um, what type of data would be collected, what type of survey instrument will be created, um, how people will be invited, and then um, a selection process for participation. Because of course, this will be a very, very small pilot. And, and so I imagine it's going to be um, several months of, of work uh, where we're sort of trying to come up with, with ideas of how we'd like to proceed, sharing that with the city council, getting the reaction of um, council members. Obviously, this is now very public, and so I imagine there will be quite a bit of comment at, at, at among the community members on what they would like to see. And, and so I think it will be a relatively um, interactive process that will be going on um, for the next um, five or six months by the time there's time for community input, city council member input. Um, it's my best guess, but we're still, we've met once with just <laughs> brief conversations so far. Well, we appreciate your time, uh, Steve Ross, also Dr. Gina Rossich, Assistant Professor at the University of St. Joseph's Department of Social Work and Equitable Community Practice. We'd love to check in with both of you as you move further along in this process. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. I wanted to um, finish with this tweet. Uh, Mercy writes, every issue we see in our society can be nearly solved if we resolve poverty. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk more about this potential pilot program in the terms of what other cities and countries uh, have experienced when they've tried a UBI, universal basic income. We're going to talk to a Bloomberg reporter who's been covering this and take your questions to 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. The 
is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A universal basic income or a regular check from the government, no strings attached, sounds pretty good, but how sustainable is it? And should everyone get a check? We wanted to learn how different cities and countries have <clears throat> approached this idea of a basic income and what the outcomes have been. Joining us now on Zoom is Sarah Holder, staff writer for Bloomberg's City Lab. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So we heard that the Hartford City Council was inspired by the city of Stockton, California, which had launched a two-year experiment, I believe, in February of 2019. About 125 residents received unconditional payments of $500 a month. So what caused Stockton to think about starting this program, and what did they see? Yeah, so in 2017, uh, Mayor Michael Tubbs was elected to be the mayor of Stockton. He grew up in the city and experienced poverty uh, growing up with a single mother um, and his father was in prison. Um, and when he came back and, and ran for mayor, economic and racial justice were at the fore. Um, he started meeting with some philanthropists who suggested um, and, and talked to him about the idea of piloting a basic income and so by February 2019, he got together a team of researchers um, and the philanthropic funding to start it. Um, so his city became one of the, the biggest and, and the most um, rigorously analyzed um, UBI pilot in the U.S. back in February 2019. The pilot was only supposed to run for 18 months, but then the coronavirus hit um, and the, the need you know skyrocketed in the city. And so... Uh, another private philanthropist donated a bit more, and so they could extend it for the full two-year uh, duration. Um, and and some of the results have already started coming out. So that's interesting that philanthropy was involved from the get-go. Was that important to have buy-in to this idea in Stockton, Sarah, that this was not something that was coming from taxpayers? Yeah, I mean, I think especially two years ago, you know, right now we're, we're talking about so many examples um, but two years ago, it was it was seen as sort of a radical idea. Um, and I think there was a lot of skepticism in the city, even with uh, this this private backing, and especially in a city like Stockton, which had been impacted by the foreclosure crisis, um, by the 2008 recession. You know, it's it's a it doesn't have you know, that extra money to go around. Um, so it needed that outside support, both uh, for the confidence of the electorate and also just to, to make it happen. We heard earlier from Steve Ross that in Alaska, they have a true universal basic income program where they're getting a check. Everyone's getting it from the mineral royalties there. Uh, but when we think about uh, the individuals in Stockton and you know how the poverty in that city translates it all to what Hartford uh, is seeing with their residents. Yeah, I mean, so the basic income program was targeted at census tracts. Um, where the average resident was making less than 46,000, which is the median income in Stockton. Um, and so, you know, while this program was, you know, targeted towards hopefully the lowest income and the highest need individuals in the city, um, there were no uh, extra means testing. So it wasn't just to, to families. Um, it, it wasn't just to one racial group. It wasn't just to, you know, single parents, as I, I think Hartford's is, is aiming to focus on. So it was both, you know, wide in scope, trying to uh, hit as many people that needed it as possible, and also narrow to, to focus on the, the highest need um, in Stockton. Um, and, and again, limited by the, the 
the fact that they only had the funding to really target 125 individuals. So what were some of the results? You talked to residents in Stockton that were able to get this this regular check, and, and how did it make an impact on them? Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. I went in August 2020, so during the pandemic and and spoke to people, you know, masked from a distance. Um, And, you know, some of the things that they told me were they were able to um, get a new job when coronavirus um, ended an employment opportunity. They were able to leave their husband, one woman told me, um, able to, to stop taking on these extra gig work jobs, able to spend more time with their kids. And these are some of the, you know, qualitative outcomes. But uh, a research paper from the first year was just published, which showed, um, again, as Steve was mentioning, that uh, job um, outcomes were really, really affected, which I think was really surprising and and exciting for the researchers. you know, among recipients, the rate of full-time employment leapt 12 percentage points over the course of just one year, um, and that's compared to a control group as well that did not see those uh, those kinds of strong job um, outcomes. And and you know, as again, both Gina and Steve mentioned, a lot of the things that um, poverty causes, you know, mental stress, um, time constraints, those those were able to fall away. Income volatility dropped as well as you might imagine. Um, and so it was a really, you know, strong case study in some of the benefits of, of a universal basic income. What does the data tell us in other parts of the world who have tried basic income programs? I understand Finland has tried it. I think Canada was talking about it as well, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, when I say that, you know, it's this radical idea in the United States over the past two years, you know, there have actually been a lot of gestures at, at testing, you know, cash assistance. Um maybe in in different forms. So even in the 60s and 70s, the US um, had some other uh, kind of pilot programs that were testing a negative income tax during the Nixon administration. Um, Those had sort of inconclusive results. You know, people, some people worked more, some people worked less. Um, Women were able to leave their husbands, which wasn't necessarily seen as a good thing um, in in that time. Um, Manitoba had an, an experiment that its its results weren't analyzed for many years because there just wasn't the political will to actually follow through at the time. Um, and and results from that showed that people were healthier um, as well. Um, the Finland example is really interesting because it was applied mostly to, or only to unemployed um, residents of Finland. And it was really trying to test whether uh, a guaranteed income for these residents would make them get jobs. Um, and so when it stopped, they found that it didn't really have a significant impact, um, unlike Stockton's experiment on on um, employment outcomes. Uh, it didn't make people not get jobs, but it didn't it didn't really boost um, in, in any significant way. Um, but what it did find is that people were happier. Um, and again, that's for, for some of the reasons we mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Ontario is another example also in Canada. Um, they also had a, a sort of short-lived basic income experiment um, where uh, another outcome was that people, you know, in addition to being healthier, used doctor's offices and, and, and ER visits less, um, which, you know, in addition to, to showing that there are positive health outcomes, also strained other social services less. Um, but uh, there, too, it was, it was discontinued because there was a governmental change um, and, and it wasn't considered, uh, you know, economically viable. 
What I thought was interesting about the Finland experiment, I understand if I'm reading this right, uh, that uh, for people that were eligible, there were some other assistance programs that they did not receive versus in Stockton, Mayor Tubbs was very adamant that we're not going to take away certain assistance that people were, were getting. This is going to be extra because we want to significantly help them and not have to take away something to get a little bit more in another program. Right, right. And I think, yeah, as you mentioned, that's a big consideration and a fear among some recipients that, you know, they're going to, um, you know, exit that that cliff by by making too much money. Um, in in uh, Stockton, there was an agreement with the San Joaquin Housing Authority. So um, folks did not lose their housing assistance, even if their income threshold changed due to this additional income. But we've seen in other places that are trying pilots that um, some people who are eligible uh, to participate might you know, be deterred because of that fear. So it's, it's really, I think, uh, part of the design process is you know, either accounting for those um, potential negative impacts, uh, you know, uh, making agreements with other county organizations, or just you know, making sure people understand the way that uh, their other you know, welfare benefits might be affected by, by an income boost. Stanford University's Basic Income Lab looked at UBI and these variations of basic income, and it found that you know, there's limited research on the impact of these programs at the community level because pilots and experiments, most of them, have not really implemented true universality mm -hmm. because of these financial restraints and constraints that we've already talked about, Sarah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's still a, a new and emerging field. I mean, we've talked about some of the research that's already come out. But I think even in the next year or, or, you know, in 2021, there's so many pilots, including potentially Hartford's, you know, the Bay Area where I'm based is, is a really, uh, you know, fertile ground for this because there is a lot of philanthropic funding. And as you mentioned, you know, um, the idea that automation might pose a threat to traditional employment has inspired a lot of tech people like Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter or the CEO of Twitter, um, to, you know, put, put money behind these programs. So I, I think, yeah, definitely look out for, for results from, you know, Oakland's pilots, San Francisco's multiple, um, pilots, uh, you know, St. Louis has one, um, it, it's really, it's grown nationwide. And, and I think that'll, uh, produce some interesting and, and probably varied results on both the design of such a program, the funding of such a program and, and how it impacts residents' lives. Again, you're a reporter for City Lab, so it's not a surprise to you to see cities looking at this type of program versus a state uh, not as complicated or maybe the effort uh, the, to be more innovative, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, <laughs> um, at City Lab, we really focus on how cities are the you know laboratory of democracy. They're able to pilot these um social programs, especially at a smaller scale um, and at a more um, ambitious scale. But I think um, we've been talking about a lot of mayors who have been spearheading this work. Um, there's a group called Mayors for a Guaranteed Income that was convened by uh, former Mayor Tubbs of Stockton. And in addition to advocating for local level pilots, um, mostly using either philanthropic funding or in some cases CARES dollars, um, they're also advocating for federal action. And I think that that will be really interesting to see whether that, you know, gains any traction. There were the direct payments during the uh, coronavirus crisis, still ongoing. Um, and there's been, you know, other steps to expand 
safety net programs like the earned income tax credit for for um, families with children. Um, and and so while you know uh, a UBI or a guaranteed income isn't yet implemented on a nationwide scale and, and perhaps would be politically difficult, there are versions of this that are um, gaining traction, not just at the local level, but beyond. Because you've been covering this, Sarah, we got a, a listener call, um, wasn't able to stay on. Uh, but Rick asked, you know, why should people who are working subsidize those who are choosing not to work? And so if you could kind of uh, address that again with some of the critiques that you've heard and again, the benefits to a program like this. Yeah, I mean, I think one one thing that advocates of a, of a guaranteed income would say is that poverty itself costs everyone a lot of money. You know, there are the the social issues where people perhaps um, have to fall into homelessness and, and they, you know, have to live in homeless shelters or, or um, on the streets. There are, uh, you know, there's evidence that poverty uh, contributes to the cycles of incarceration that we see, you know, in, in, a, in a lot of these other pilots, as I mentioned, you know, just going to the ER costs cities, costs um, communities a lot of money. And and if people are able to seek preventive care, um, they can avoid those additional costs. Um, and so I think that, uh, yeah, the argument would be that poverty is already costing people a lot of money. And, and one of the easiest ways to get people out of it could be just paying them directly. Um, and, you know, there, there again is disagreement over whether a basic income is the right way to do it. You know, there are other social safety net programs that exist that could be um, strengthened, could be bolstered, um, and maybe that would cost less. Um, but for, for, you know, some of, some of what's coming in that question is the stigma of, of welfare recipients. And that's another um, thing that guaranteed income or a universal basic income is really supposed to address. Like if everyone was getting money directly from uh, the federal government or from the city, maybe there wouldn't be this, um, you know, stigma around the, the, the lowest income or the most needy people getting it if everyone was. Um, so that's, a, that's another argument to sort of break down those stigmas. And then finally, um, I think in Stockton, you know, there was a lot of fear that uh, you know, this this monetary support would be spent on, quote unquote, uh, you know, the wrong things like alcohol or drugs. And and, you know, part of the idea is that you can spend the money on anything. So if you if you want to do that, if you want to buy a birthday cake, if you want to buy a cigarette, you can do that. But um, what what was clear was that people were not spending uh, this money on those those items. Only one percent of spending was on um, tobacco and alcohol. Only two percent was on like self-care needs. It was it was mostly on food. It was mostly on necessities um, just to, to get by. Sarah Holder, staff writer at Bloomberg City Lab, thank you for providing more context on how these basic income programs have rolled out in other parts of our country and, and also abroad. We thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we take some time to hear poetry written by students. Their written words are being displayed in a unique way. We'll find out more after the break.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, can your employer mandate that you have the COVID vaccine before coming back to in-person offices? We'll talk about that tomorrow. We'll also hear from the acting public health commissioner, Deidre Gifford, with your questions, too. That's tomorrow. Now, we love reading poetry and talking about it. If you're in Hartford, you may have seen the CT Transit bus, and on it are words written by young people. Poetry. The Poetry Bus is a project from the Charter Oak Cultural Center's Youth Arts Institute. To talk about it, joining us now is Melanie Farinello. She's a teaching artist at Charter Oak and founder of Poetry on the Streets. Melanie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So tell me about what inspired this idea for the Poetry Bus. Oh, well, um, I've always been interested in the idea of connecting poetry with transit um, and you know, bringing poetry sort of into our everyday public spaces. Um, it's kind of the idea that like poetry exists in the everyday. And I thought that um, this would be a really cool project for kids to feel empowered and see their their words traveling around the city on a bus. Um, and I was also inspired by the by the program Poetry in Motion, which is a national po- um, program launched um, in New York around the 90s and they've been displaying published poems on on um, transit across the country um, but the difference is I wanted to um, display the the words from these young writers my students you mentioned your students they're part of the youth arts institute Susan Mazer is with us she directs the youth arts institute Susan tell us about the students who participated well, the Youth Arts Institute itself serves about a thousand Hartford children every year with completely free arts education. So instruments are free, um, classes are free, supplies are free, and our programs are both on site and in partner locations across the city. Um, this is our 20th year doing the work of social justice through the arts, and Melanie teaches two classes for us a Hartford Young Writers Club class, and a class for older teens called Word Up. So Melanie, when you're uh, talking with these students, what were some of the themes that you brought up that helped them as they crafted these poems? Um, Well, we started the semester with um, Amanda Gorman's poem because she had just read it at the inauguration. um, And that was really inspiring. Um, for that kind of set the tone for the semester. Um, and then each week we read different published poems, um, discuss themes such as resilience. We talked a lot about the pandemic and how their lives have changed um, in the past year. Um, we talked about their futures, identity. And then we read this beautiful tribute poem um, to Frederick Douglass by Robert Hayden called Frederick Douglass. And we um, the prompt for that was writing about freedom and and so we used the um, we used their poems um, about freedom for the poetry bus. I wanted to hear from some of the students reading their poetry that's featured on the poetry bus. Here is 17-year-old Matthias. My name is Matthias Pena, and I'm 17 years old. Our dream of the future is to continue to fight for what it is we deserve, to see each other eye to eye and combat the evil that has plagued our land for far too long. They say that dreams can come true, but they never come free. For if equality is what we are fighting for, we must start from the ground up. Uh, His words really resonated with me, Melanie. When you heard Matthias with his poem, how did you feel? 
Oh my gosh. I, I'm, I'm just so proud of all the kids really this semester. They've worked so hard and I feel like they were so brave to, to engage in this um, project and, and willing to share their words, you know, with the larger community and um, they're, I just, I'm just really happy and proud of them. I think that they're, it makes me sort of hopeful for the future. Um, feeling like this generation is going to be really resilient and strong um, for what they, you know, what they've gone through this past year and just being able to express themselves and think deeply. And I thought it was just beautiful. We have a, another student reading her poem. This is Vida. My name is Vida Intimensa and I'm 13. Our dream of a future with these beautiful necessities, of equality where you can be you, of happiness where you can laugh and smile, of righteousness where the truth is served every time, of awareness where you learn and teach, of honesty where you don't resent the cold truth, of education where you can expect greatness every time, of non-bias where you don't look at someone and play guess with their life, of freedom, where we can walk with our heads held high. Uh, Susan Mazur, that last line, where we can walk with our heads held high, talk about the impact on these students, that they can now see their words uh, on display on the CT transit bus. Yeah, that's a perfect line to pick out. Um, you know, I think to sum it up, this was such a rough year for everyone, but especially our students. Um, so Charter Oak had to think of, you know, extremely creative ways to keep the kids engaged, um, whether it was in Zoom or in person. So this was a perfect project. Um, it was a way to let our kids shine, remind them that they're heard and that their voices matter. Um, and you know, it may seem like such a small little project, but to me, it could have potentially just a major impact on their positive self-esteem long-term. Um, and I think that matters as much as, mu as, much as the, the creative growth, the social and emotional growth. So I think, you know, next Saturday, the bus is pulling up in front of Charter Oak and the kids are going to gather in front of the bus and see their words. And there is nothing stronger than, than something like that. More powerful. I love to hear that, uh, this, that they're going to be seeing their words on this bus together. Uh, Melanie, have any of them seen it before? And I'm just curious, uh, you know, you talked about you loved it, to see the reaction of these students. What have they told you about this whole project? Um, yes, yeah, so I have been showing them pictures all along um, the way. I worked um, closely with the design company, with Vector Media, back and forth, trying to get the layout and the words. And initially I wanted, you know, every student's full poems to be covering the whole bus and the design company, you know, it's like, that's, you, there's not, there's not space for that. So we had to go back and forth a bunch of times. And, and each week when I saw the students, you know, virtually through our Zoom class, I would screen share the images of what they had done and, you know, the, the final um, bus in, pr in production. Um, and they were just so excited to see, um, you know, the process also had them having to pick out sort of their, their favorite line that they felt represented their work then to be displayed. And, um, and actually for the younger students, they, they wrote collaboratively. Um, and so they felt sort of connected to one another, knowing that, you know, their work as a, as a, as a unit was going to be displayed. And, and every time I showed them a picture through the zoom call, they were just, 
so excited. And I think they're really looking forward to bringing their families on Saturday and sharing it with their families in person. Now that's CT Transit Bus 1732. I understand, Melanie, this is just going to be on the bus for about six weeks total. I feel like this should be an ongoing project. I kind of think of this as a pilot project, honestly, and um, I do have plans in the works for more uh, to bring more public art projects to the city, and hopefully it will involve more collaboration and more community engagement. So um, yes, hopefully it will it will continue to grow. Well, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this unique program. Uh, it's really lovely. Melanie Farinello, who's a teaching artist at Charter Oak, founder of Poetry on the Streets. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me. And Susan Mazur is director of the Youth Arts Institute at Charter Oak Cultural Center. Susan, thank you for your work and your time today. Thank you so much, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. On the board today was Gina Matruda. On the phones, Carmen Baskoff. Uh, we can come back tomorrow and hear from the acting public health commissioner, Deidre Gifford, about the latest in the vaccine strategy in our state. And we'll talk to an employment law expert about what employers can mandate when it comes to the COVID vaccine. Back tomorrow. Mm-hmm.